Welcome to the Proud to be Profane podcast, your initiation into the ways of the square to resurrect the wretch and pee on the all-seeing pyramid of Illuminati enlightenment. And now, here's your host, Mr. Michael Joseph. Welcome to the Proud to be Profane podcast. Welcome to episode 20, where we are kicking off the history sub-segment of the podcast and the first legit solo show. And the topic of today's podcast will be the Cathars, the dualist heretics in southern France during the High Middle Ages. And this will be an important episode for any of those enamored with Gnosticism, and we might cleanse you from some of this enamorment in an alternative sort of baptism that is vastly different from the baptism or consolamentum ritual of these Cathars, which sometimes involved suicide. And the more these Cathars developed their doctrines and became a problem, the more they progressed their suicidal tendencies. But alas, many out there will romanticize the Cathars as being these free-thinking, peaceful vegetarians who were all about religious tolerance and progress. But then, the evil Catholic Church with their satanic demiurge worship came and crushed them and murdered them. But they neglect to tell you the types of deep esoteric wisdom that these Cathars were spreading amongst the Christians. Such as telling pregnant women that they had a demon in their belly and they should ask God for its destruction. Also that women were intrinsically evil and that it's probably best to euthanize grandma and your newborn baby via starvation after their consolamentum baptism. So I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound very illuminating to me. But in this age of moral relativism, who am I to say that that's bad? But the Catholic Church certainly thought it was bad, and now you probably understand why they brought about a crusade after a few monks were sent out to try to reason with the Cathars and explain that their viewpoints are ridiculous, and they get murdered for it. Well, that's not gonna fly in Papal Rome at the time. Now, we're not going to say the Crusaders never got a little out of hand, but if you go punch a guy on the street and tell his pregnant wife that she's got a demon in her belly and you get both your arms broken, can you really cry victim in that situation? So Cathar Crazy Time starts right about now. Welcome to the Proud to be Profane podcast, episode 20, where we kick off the history segment and the esoteric wordplay at hand is taking his story or someone's own interpretation of historical events and then mixing it with a more metaphysical worldview with the idea of God's hand moving throughout history, which is how they viewed these things in the old world. So we're trying to fuse all these things together with the micro and the macro and seeing if we can find any common threads. So with that being said, the first topic we will be examining is the Cathars, and our foundation will be the book by Malcolm Barber called The Cathars. So for the first hour, we're going to discuss 
the historical evidence, and in the second hour, we will bring in some other viewpoints to perhaps fill in the gaps of what Mr. Barber doesn't cover, especially in relationship to the Jewish element in the Cathar heresy, and also different people's romanticized view of the Cathars once we examine the actual historical evidence of what they believed and what they did, but also where they came from and how the Roman Catholic Church dealt with them. So let's begin. Now Mr. Barber begins talking about how he studied both the Cathars and the Templars, but despite some commonalities, he thinks that they are basically separate entities, although a lot of people try to tie them together. So, to him, the commonalities are that they were both suppressed by inquisitional efforts, and they were both accused of heresies of which the Roman Catholic Church dealt with, and then they faded out into oblivion after that. But for Mr. Barber, the commonalities stop there, and he says that the differences are that the Cathars were willing to die for their beliefs, whereas the Templars seemed more surprised by the charges against them and generally tried to avoid going to the stake. And he also says that many people tried to tie them together through the idea of secret societies and cults tied to Eastern mysticism, and that somehow they are connected in that sense. But Mr. Barber thinks that is a false mythos that is invented to give a more romanticized version of these groups. Now, I will certainly admit that that tends to happen, and I think that the alternative media falls into that trap very often, especially thinking the Cathars were these heroes fighting against tyranny and oppression. But once we go through what they actually believed and what they actually promoted and did, you might think differently. But I do think we can find an overlap between the accusations against the Templars and the Cathars however true or false they might have been, within certain elements of Judaism that we have covered, especially in the Occult Catholicism series. But we will save that for the second hour. So let's start out by giving the broad strokes, and we'll expand upon some of these key foundational points as we go through this. The first is that the Cathars and their doctrines were essentially Gnostic Manichaean dualists where they believe that the god of the material world, the creator, was the devil, was evil, was the adversary, was the Satan. And this god who created matter and mankind in his physical body, well, he trapped them in this matter, and only the spirit is good, and thus the release from this prison of the body is through the baptismal ritual called consolamentum, of which the Cathar priests, the elect, if you will, could perform on others. So this is an alternative baptism to the Catholic Church's version, and obviously they are completely at odds, where the Catholic Church's creator God is the creator of the material world, and creation is good, albeit it is fallen because their adversary or Satan is the serpent that tempted Adam and Eve and is thus the cause of evil of which God allows for a greater good. But of course, if you are a Cathar Gnostic, then the God of the Catholic Church is evil and Satan because he's the creator. But of course, Jesus Christ is still a revered figure, but their definition of them is completely different than the Catholic Church's. 
For if matter is evil, then Christ the Savior, who represents the God of spirit, could not have incarnated in a physical body. So the Catholic Church is just a bunch of liars, and they're trying to keep you trapped in the material world and calling it good. And so with this inverted baptism, there's also an inverted hierarchy. So the Cathars had their own bishops, priests, deacons, and dioceses, and the elect, if you will, who performed this sacramental baptism or the consolamentum were called the perfecti or the perfecti because they were perfect. So these male perfecti or female perfecti, once perfected, well, they kind of had to stay that way, and that's the problem. There's no sacrament of confession to go to and deal with your flaws and imperfections. You just got to stay the course, and that was a problem for a lot of people. So these perfected folks weren't allowed to procreate, even within the sacrament of marriage like the Catholic Church teaches, because creating children is evil. You're trapping more souls in human form, and thus procreation is a sin. And from this belief, there's going to be a lot of wacky stuff that we'll get into, and it's going to sound like some weird-ass cult. But for all those that couldn't sustain this lifestyle, well, the lay folks were called credentes, who wanted the consolamentum before they died. So they could just live how they wanted to, basically, and then they'd get the perfected baptism just before they die because it's kind of hard to sin on your deathbed, especially in the acts of procreation. So there's a weird kind of copy of some things in Roman Catholicism where you don't want to die in a state of mortal sin, but this is taking it to an extreme. And this led to a ritual called the Endura, which basically suicided those on their deathbed if they started to recover. And then suicide became more of a sacrament and something to be glorified. And this reminds us of cults like Heaven's Gate or something like that. All of these suicide cults where they have this sort of Gnostic idea of ascending to the cosmos or some sort of oneness. And I believe that cult had some weird Protestant millennialism tied to it with this sort of Gnostic dualism, and maybe aliens and Jesus alien? I don't know, but the point is, you can see how a lot of cults have these sort of Gnostic dualist mindsets. And is that kind of the point? These things destroy lives and destroy Catholic culture, and is that why they might actually be a proxy warrior ideology for both oligarchs in the temporal realm, but at the same time powers and principalities in the metaphysical realms. And in Roman Catholicism, you might call them demons or fallen angels. They also had their own understanding of quote-unquote end times or the end of days, but this did not involve any sort of final judgment or a sorting out of souls, but rather when the last human is released from the prison of the body, then they will all have escaped and the material realm will collapse and then we're all in this spiritual oneness back where we belong, apparently. But if you reason that out, by default, the annihilation of the entire human race is a good thing in this Cathar Gnostic dualism. So this is a far cry from the Catholic Church's 
be fruitful and multiply and have giant families. So, naturally, the Catholic Church is going to be called the Beast and the Harlot of Revelation by these Cathars. And that sounds a lot like Protestants, especially people like Martin Luther. And we're going to read from page 95 to get some personal testimony from Moneta of Cremona as to what the Cathars believed. And apparently, they believed almost all of what is found in Revelation 16:17 and the first part of chapter 19 applied to the Catholic Church. And it states, For they interpret the beast and the woman as references to the Roman Church. The beast, we read, was scarlet. Likewise, we find in verse 4 that the woman was clothed with scarlet and purple and gilt with gold, and the precious stones and pearls having a golden cup in her hand. These words are applicable to the Lord Pope, who is the head of the Roman Church. This woman, drunk with the blood of the saints, in verse 6, is referred to in the same connection. This symbol they attach to the Roman Church because it orders their death, for they believe they are the saints. So, the Cathars think that they are the saints being martyred in the book of Revelation, and that the Roman Catholic Church is the beast and the harlot of which is drunk on their blood. And it's pretty interesting because a lot of Protestants viewed themselves as those very same martyrs when the Reformation, Counter-Reformation battles were happening. Yet the Protestants believe Jesus Christ was real and God and that creation is good, as far as I know. Yet they are sympathizing with Gnostics of whom the Protestants would find completely heretical. So it seems like there's some pretty strange bedfellows when you want to polemicize the Catholic Church as being the beast and the harlot in Revelation. Whereas the Catholic interpretation of the book of Revelation is that the blood of these saints are the Christians in the first century AD being persecuted by the beast of Rome and also the Jews who did not accept Christ, and that is the harlot of Jerusalem. At least according to the scholar Dr. Brant Petrie, he identifies the woman as Israel and Jerusalem and Rome as the beast. And so the angry Jews who don't accept Christ combined with the beast of Rome are killing the Christians. And this Roman beast turns on the woman or Israel and destroys its temple. And we've also talked about how the gematria of the Latin and the Greek of Caesar Nero brought into Hebrew equals 666 for the Greek and 616 for the Latin. And that is the only version that explains the manuscripts that have 616 as the number of the beast. So thus, it would make a lot more sense for the book of Revelation to have transpired in the early Christianity from 0 to 100 AD leading up to the conversion of the pagan tribes and Christ's kingdom and millennial reign happening through Christendom. Otherwise, how do you explain the 616 in the Protestant end times, let alone the Cathars' interpretation of the Whore of Babylon being the Catholic Church that is crusading against them? Moving on to the origin of the heresy, well, it came from Byzantium, the Bogomils being dualists in Bulgaria and Macedonia in around the 930s AD, and this was a more primitive dualism, and then it evolved in 
Thrace and Constantinople, and eventually headed towards the west and ended up in southern France and northern Italy, and a Greek Byzantine Cathar bishop of Constantinople called Papa Nicitas brought this heresy over to the Roman Catholic territories around 1170 AD. And we're not saying he's the only reason that it came into Roman Catholic territory, but he certainly is the most important figure in the exportation of this heresy from Byzantium into Catholic territory. And apparently some of this also ended up in the Rhineland, which is western areas of Germany. And what's so interesting about this Cathar heresy, according to Mr. Barber, is that it was promulgated by both the lower and upper class. Usually heresies like this were exclusive to one or the other, but this was all levels of society, and it was very well organized, very well financed, and they had their own castles, and they had all of these different aristocratic lords protecting them, even if they weren't Cathars themselves, they were sympathetic to their cause. So they quote-unquote tolerated the Cathars, and this was a big problem for the Roman Catholic aristocracy that knew that these doctrines and ideas were very destructive. And one of the key figures of protecting these Cathars were the Counts of Toulouse, and specifically Raymond VI. And so the Catholic Church, in dealing with this heresy, tried to deal with it in the way they usually do, with intellectual arguments, trying to refute the errors and bring them back into the church. So it's not like they just went out there and tried to kill them all like a bunch of impulsive, fanatical bigots, but that's kind of the story you're going to get, especially from more liberal traditions. And the Cathars were just these peaceful, loving vegetarians who wanted religious tolerance in a world of bigotry and hate. But we'll let you decide after we lay out what some of these Cathars were telling people and encouraging. But alas, these Cathars were quite stubborn, and the catalyst, the main one, into pushing for a crusade against them was the murder of a papal legate named Peter of Castelnau by a vassal of this Count Raymond VI of Toulouse. There were also some other instances of Catholic monks trying to reason with the Cathars, but they were attacked or even murdered themselves. So it's not like the Cathars were that peaceful and innocent. Maybe some were, but certainly there were some acts of violence against the Roman Catholic Church when they're just trying to have a discussion. And so thus, the crusade is organized. It was led by Simon of Montfort, who was a little zealous himself, and he led the charge, and there were a lot of different political interests involving Spanish and French kings, and the political stuff is not so interesting in my opinion, so we're going to kind of bypass a lot of that. If you'd like to know more about it, you can feel free to read the book. But to sum it up, Pope Innocent III commissions the crusade, but he also has little control over it, and he felt fairly uneasy about it, and this only increased over time as the crusade did get a little zealous. But he also had some good reason to be uneasy about it because the rogue fourth crusade, which eventually sacked the city of Constantinople, was in the not so distant past, about five or six years prior to the Cathar crusade. 
And we'll elaborate on this fourth crusade in a little bit because there's an interesting correlation with the heresy coming from Constantinople and then Constantinople having an attack on it that was completely rogue and not sanctioned by this innocent, no pun intended, Pope Innocent III, but he's often accused of malice involving the Fourth Crusade against Byzantium. And so when it was all said and done, there were particular beneficiaries of this crusade. Some were particular kings of France in Louis VIII and IX and Philip II. And another innovation out of this crusade was that the Inquisition developed. But of course, there will be many different groups out there that will attack the Inquisition as being a regressive institution, and that is the modern Whig Anglo-propaganda and propaganda from occultists, theosophists, Protestants, all kinds of people. But strip aside all of that angst about the Inquisition and really think about it. The Crusades were targeting a broad group of people and thus more disaster could happen from it, which we've seen. And the Inquisition could target specific individuals promoting heresy. And when you have Cathars telling pregnant women that they have a demon in their womb, and that you should commit suicide in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, well, personally, this is just me, I would like a secret police trying to hunt down that kind of crap and not allowing it into the society of which I live. Call me crazy, but I don't think that that's the most progressive, enlightened viewpoint to be promoting, despite the liberal West thinking that the Cathars were so progressive and tolerant and lovely, and that the evil Roman Catholic Church were just the murderous, fanatical bigots and zealots of religious intolerance, suppressing the free-thinking torch of liberty of which these Cathars possessed. But now that paradise has been lost. Or is that the mythologizing of it? So, instead of having a crusade with a lot of collateral damage, the Inquisition was a progressive and enlightened institution in order to target specific subverters and avoid mass casualties. And once the crusade dust had settled and the Inquisition was doing its thing, the Cathars were on the run, they had no more support, and they started to hide in northern Italy, which is, interestingly enough, a battleground many centuries later, with the Catholic Habsburgs and Papal States trying to suppress Masonic revolution in that very area coming from Geneva. And the final benefit of the Cathar Crusade and purging southern France of these heretics was, surprise, surprise, the economy improved. So once these progressive liberals of the time were suppressed, not allowed into power, well, somehow, miraculously, there's economic prosperity. How does that work? And one thing that's interesting is that despite the Cathars' extreme asceticism and refraining from worldly indulgences, well, people often accuse them of being hypocrites and being some of the most indulgent people and mooching off of everybody else and thus draining the resources of the kingdom in order to sustain their bohemian lifestyle. So perhaps some of these perfecti weren't so perfected or 
There was only a few of them, and all the others were the lay people who indulged in whatever they wanted until their deathbed where they received consolamentum. So perhaps the lesson is when you purge progressive liberals from an area, prosperity ensues, despite all of them having formerly preached prosperity, but what is the actual result of said doctrines? And the other interesting aspect of this is that they protested on a campaign against Catholic corruption and immorality and greed and indulgence. But when you make those claims against people above you, you better not do those same things yourself or you're a giant hypocrite. And is that the challenge? And is that a similar pattern of the Cathars and what happened once they got into the aristocracy, as did with the Protestant Reformation and people like Luther, who allowed a lot of Protestant princes to get rich off of looting the Catholic Church, and the lines of those very same princes created a lot of problems for Christendom and unleashed a lot of quote-unquote beasts into the world, one of them being the Rothschild through the landgrave of Hess Castle. This is all stuff that we covered in the Albert Pike Templars series in the Schism 206 members research section. So continuing on, let's talk about some of the main sources of which we derive much of the information on the Cathars from. And we're going to make a little comparison between the Gnostics of old in the first four centuries of Christianity and the Gnostic revival of sorts happening with the Cathar heresy. So we have three sources of Peter of Levaux de Cernay, who was more of a Catholic zealot. He's a little intense. And Mr. Barber, you can tell, is not very enamored with what he has to say. So Mr. Peter was one of two sources that were accompanying the Crusaders and documenting the entire campaign. And the other traveler was William of Puy-Lorraine, and he was on the more moderate side of Christianity. He was still upset about the Cathars and their strange doctrines, but at the same time wasn't quite as zealous as Mr. Peter and perhaps a little more forgiving or sympathetic when some of the crusaders got a little out of hand. And Barber is much more favorable towards him. And then there is another source, which is an anonymous one, but appears to be a Cathar himself who was bearing witness to these crusades and this was interwoven into a work called the Chanson, which again is anonymous. And so when you're not given your actual name, could that perhaps indicate a bit more of a bias? Who knows? But this author of the Chanson seemed to think that this crusade destroyed a peace-loving bohemian utopia of which art and music and progressive ideas flourished. So to him, it's like a paradise lost to a hateful, bigoted crusade from evil, intolerant, fanatical Catholics. And that sounds very similar to what we talked about with Carl Sagan's perspective on the paradise lost of Alexandrian liberalism, of which Hypatia was his muse to represent symbolically as the virgin goddess who is raped by the evil Catholic and fanatical religious bigots 
that destroyed the Alexandrian library, murdered Hypatia, and it was all orchestrated by the evil Catholic saint Cyril of Alexandria, who was just so jealous that she was a woman who had knowledge and followers from afar, and he just couldn't stand the fact that a woman was free-thinking, and so he conspired against her. And that's just what fanatical religious zealots like early Roman Catholics do. They destroy Jewish liberalism and cosmopolitan paradises, and then the Dark Ages ensue for a thousand years where not a single free-thinking thought ever happened until the Neoplatonism came back at the Renaissance. Now we've discussed many times in previous Schism 206 research that maybe that's just a slight exaggeration from Mr. Sagan, and that the three primary sources that we have on Hypatia, kind of paralleling the three sources we just mentioned about the Cathar Crusade, well, we have a more zealous Christian who is deeming Hypatia as kind of a witch handler of Orestes, who was baptized Catholic but now is leaning back towards paganism, and Hypatia is doing some sort of mystical magic on him to try to manipulate him politically and so she's like an ancient version of Yoko Ono manipulating John Lennon or Marina Abramovich spirit cooking for Democratic Party politicians of whom some are ironically baptized Catholic like John Podesta. So there's the more zealous conspiratorial Catholic viewpoint of Hypatia of Alexandria. Then we have the more moderate Catholic in Socrates Scholasticus, who said that the behavior of the mob that attacked Hypatia was not very Christian, and that Cyril of Alexandria was not the one who instigated it. And there were a lot of mobs going around that time of all different beliefs, from Jews to Christians to pagans, causing a lot of problems. So, we know that the masses can get easily roused, but... Are there particular Pharisees who intentionally rouse them? Setting that aside, the final source is Damasius, who was a Neoplatonist, and he was certainly anti-Christian, and he was very pro-Hypatia, and he basically gives us the Carl Sagan narrative, where she was a great beauty, wonderful philosopher, and the evil Christians conspired against her. But perhaps was he a little enamored with her himself, and maybe he was bewitched by some of her magic. I don't know. We'll let you decide. But I thought it was a very interesting parallel to the three sources of the crusade against the Cathar heresy. So to wrap up the second half of this first hour, we are going to expand a bit more on the development of this Manichaean dualism in Byzantium and then its transference into the Roman Catholic territories. And once these ideas are spread, we will start looking at some of the behaviors of people who are adopting these mindsets and what is being promoted by the Cathar priests themselves. And we might want to ask the question, are these doctrines really illuminating and forward-thinking and progressive or is that just something people tell themselves because it sounds nice and it really leads to some sordid and destructive things? And that's the point. It is a proxy warrior religion or spirituality in order to destroy and destabilize Catholic Christendom by particular powers in both the temporal and spiritual realms. 
So first, let's consider the source. We mentioned how it came from the East, in Byzantium, and how it developed early on in Bulgaria, Bosnia, and Macedonia with the early Bogomils, who were more of a moderate dualism, where they still thought the creation was evil and bad, and that spirit was only good, but these two powers were created by the same god, and they had equal force. So there's Christ and Satan, and this gets into some viewpoints of Jesus having a brother, Satanael, Satanel, I don't know how you pronounce it, but this is the kind of stuff you'll find in a lot of Carl Jung writings on Gnosticism. And then this is carried on through a lot of people who look at things from a Jungian psychology standpoint, and some astrologers utilize this for birth chart analysis, this Jungian Gnostic worldview or lens to analyze the chart through. So that's pretty interesting that this is the kind of stuff that's going on with the Cathars. There's also an interesting doctrine that you'll find cropping up about the serpent having sex with Eve and producing Cain. Now this is tied to Kabbalah stuff, and this is also an overlap with some Protestant viewpoints where they think that there is a serpent seed that is literal in a corrupt genealogy, and this gets into weird Nephilim stuff. And a lot of the times, they'll tie this to Jesuit conspiracies, where the Roman Catholic Church is this corrupted line through the Jesuits giving you pagan mystery Babylon, right? But you're in a strange position because you're promoting a doctrine of Jewish Kabbalah and the Cathar Gnostic heresy that is telling you that creation is evil and that babies are demonic. So if you're a Protestant promoting that kind of thing, you have to wonder... Am I being manipulated here? Because you're promoting Jewish Kabbalah and Gnosticism. So those are some of the documented ideas that the Cathars were floating around at the time. And they were saying that this evil demonic Cain line is basically the Roman Catholic Church. And then the book illustrates how this heresy was able to spread because there was a lot of turmoil amongst the Byzantine Empire and different emperors usurping each other, different struggles, different conflicts, a lot of political battles. But when the emperor Basil II began a domination of this area of Bulgaria, well, that destabilized things and allowed the Bogomil heresy to spread to other parts of Byzantium, roughly between 1018 and 1185. And we mentioned how when it spread to Thrace and Constantinople, that's when it socially and intellectually evolved, as Barber puts it, and became full-on dualism, absolute dualism, as he calls it. So what's interesting about this is that this primitive heresy got developed in the city that was deemed more of an educated class, right? And all of these texts that helped support the Gnosticism that preserved it were residing in Constantinople. So these ideas about woman and procreation being evil, Eve being evil and birthing Cain and all this sordid stuff that makes women and femininity basically evil, intrinsically, very feminist and forward-thinking, like people always want the Gnostics to be, but it's the case the exact opposite. And the texts that preserved a lot of this were called the Secret Supper, 
or the Book of John and the Vision of Isaiah. These all helped influence this dualism and allowed the heresy to spread in Byzantium and in particular Constantinople. So is this an instance where being educated is actually fueling the fire because when people are more articulate, more well-read, and have this air of intellectual superiority, but they're promoting really dumb ideas at their core, well, is that a recipe for disaster? And is that very relevant to today with the leftist universities, where a lot of kids coming out of them can write articulately, they can articulate their positions, they can speak well, but they're just promoting a bunch of bullshit. And so is this the problem when the liberals try to promote education, but it's really indoctrination, and because a lot of people are wooed or impressed by people who are articulate and seemingly well-read, well, they'll just naturally be influenced by them and listen to them, right? So is this the danger of these Gnostic ideas coming into Byzantium where you have a certain amount of liberal aristocracy, it would seem, that is enamored with this Neoplatonism. So, the point being that if you can speak really eloquently, really dumb ideas, then that is going to be far more of a disaster than if there are more primitive ideas developing amongst the bogomils in the farming lands. And is that perhaps the reason for this heresy infecting all social classes and that gave it its uniqueness and its danger and why it was so well financed and protected and organized in southern France. So let's examine the testimony of a Byzantine bishop in the Orthodox Church named Cosmas and let's listen to how he described the heresy that was spreading in the Byzantine Empire. So his take is that the dualists of this time were saying that the devil is who wills creation. He created the elements, the sky, the zodiac, mankind, and procreation, encouraging mankind to take wives, eat, drink, and then indulge in material pleasures and mammon worship, right? Wanting more money, being greedy. So this is all the work of the evil creator God. And thus, this negates all of the Old Testament prophets, and the Virgin Mary is more like a harlot. Hmm, where do we know that from? Particular Talmudic doctrines, perhaps? Because she, procreating the Savior, is impossible if only spirit is good. Thus, the virgin birth is a lie and evil. And John the Baptist, his whole story is complete BS, and there is no redemption, and there is no death, no resurrection, none of that. It's all a farce. And that the Eucharist is a simple food and essentially is evil, because if you are telling people that is the presence of God in the Eucharist in a material, temporal piece of bread, well, you're just serving the devil, right? And they even appeal to scripture to justify their positions. And one of the popular go-to scriptures was Matthew chapter 4, verse 9, where Satan is tempting Christ for all the kingdoms of the world. And ironically, this is a passage that Protestants will appeal to 
to attack the Roman Catholic temporal power and the idea of church and state unified, right? Oh, the early Christians never talked about a physical kingdom, a temporal kingdom of Christ. It was all about spiritual things. This is a constant polemic against the Catholic Church from a lot of Protestants. But it really was the Gnostics who started doing this. So here's another overlap where you have a strange bedfellow and Gnosticism who thinks that Christ is an allegory and didn't actually resurrect. And the idea of him incarnating in a human is evil. And that the creator God of the Old Testament is evil. So those things aren't compatible with Protestant Christianity. Yet you are hand in glove and having a big kumbaya circle attacking the Catholic Church for their idea of a unified church and state or temporal realm under the principles of Christianity. And another key aspect of these dualists in Constantinople is they kept making women priests. And that is contrary to what Paul says. And that is a big thing going on in the Roman Catholic Church today with the Francis Circus trying to get the ordination of women on some level. Let's not go down that side tangent, but is that an indicator that Gnosticism is infiltrating your church? And these are the same things that Paul was battling in the New Testament. And we talked about that example in Corinthians from occult Catholicism. And perhaps another relationship to heretics in the Catholic Church, Mr. Cosmas reveals that they still partook in the sacraments and the liturgy, even though they didn't believe in them and called them evil. And so he basically calls them hypocrites for doing this. And he says that they constantly misinterpret Bible passages and insert their own subjective interpretation of them. And that they think the miracles of Christ are just stories or allegories. And they use a form of humility to dupe other people and call themselves real Christians because they pray eight times a day and they act all humble and holy by partaking in the sacraments, but they don't even believe in them. And they also just mooch off of others and don't work. And they use their humility as a weapon to incite compassion and sympathy. And so it's basically manipulation by humility, right? It's a mask of righteousness, a mask of humility. And they're all making women priests too. And this sounds very much like encounters that I've recently had dealing with an RCIA group where all of these things were going on. So is there nothing new under the sun? But another polemic that this Cosmos the Bishop of the Eastern Church gives is actually against his own church. And he says that a lot of these Eastern Orthodox priests, or what would become Eastern Orthodoxy, were basically not involved in combating the heresy, and they preferred to stay in their monasteries in the mountains and basically not get their hands dirty and not sit with the sinners, so to speak. They'd rather just be meditating in the mountains, not having to deal with all this heresy spreading. So he's pretty upset about a lot of priests and monks that aren't really dealing with the situation. And is that indicative of what's happening here? All of this heresy is spreading throughout Constantinople, especially, and developing. And then eventually, it's going to be taken to the Roman Catholic territories by Papa Nisitas. And lastly, Mr. Cosmas reveals 
that there is a sort of primitive Marxism involved in this, and we're going to read from page 16 to demonstrate this, where he observes, quote, They, these dualist heretics, teach their followers not to obey their masters, they scorn the rich, they hate the czars, they ridicule their superiors, they reproach the boyers, they believe that God looks in horror on those who labor for the czar, and advise that every serf not to work for his master. So this kind of sounds similar to the Bolshevik Revolution overthrowing these czars in Russia. But there was a spirituality built into it, where it wasn't completely atheistic or nihilistic or materialistic. They were basically telling these peasants that God looks on in horror if you obey the czars, because they're the demiurge, right? They are the archons holding you in this Catholic Christendom system, and they're worshiping the creator God who's evil, right? Who's the devil? Who created women? Who in turn procreate? And that is evil. We can't have that. So it's your duty to rebel against the aristocracy, and everything will be just fine once you do that, and that's what progress is. So that wraps up Mr. Cosmos's viewpoint. Let's talk about the actual transfer of this dualist heresy from Constantinople and Byzantium into the Roman Catholic territories. So as we mentioned, Mr. Papa Nisitas, the bishop of the Cathar Church in Constantinople, comes to the Lombardy area in northern Italy sometime around 1170 AD, give or take. And we have a testimony documented by a Hugh Eteriano, who was a Pisano living in Constantinople. So, an Italian dude living there talking about the Bogomil heresy spreading, and he wrote a treatise condemning it, and he demanded that the heretics be executed. Maybe that was the Roman Catholic in him coming out, because that's exactly what the Catholic Church did to this heresy once it got into their territories. And he basically documented that the whole city of Constantinople itself was filled with this heresy, and you also get this testimony from Eastern Byzantium aristocracy from the mid-12th century from the daughter of a Byzantine emperor, and her name is Anna Konemna, the Emperor Alexius I was her father, and she talked about how Thrace and Constantinople were the two major centers of this dualist heresy in her father's time, and he did work hard to suppress it. But as we mentioned, perhaps some of these Byzantine monks were too busy meditating in the mountains to jump into the battle. But it's estimated that his battle with the heresy happened very early in the 12th century, whereas the previous account we read was about 60 or 70 years later, so obviously he wasn't able to get rid of it. And so people like this Anna Konemna identifying this dualist heresy, apparently one of the reasons they were able to do so is because St. Augustine wrote against these types of ideas, and he was very useful to help identify it because they had all of his writings around, and thus they could help use that for refutations. So thank God for St. Augustine. But back to Papa Nisitas. 
Barber says on page 22 that he didn't actually create Catharism. He just introduced the dualism and the unique culture of the time, I suppose, helped evolve into what the Cathars promoted and what they did. But this also might get into some of the issues around Judaism promoting and helping to enable the heresy that is completely left out of this book, but we can actually source from Jewish historians themselves admitting this, and that stuff we'll get into in the second hour. But perhaps one thing we can connect is the Cathars' penchant to reject meat as it is a symbol of sexual reproduction. Boy, where have we heard that before? That was back in the alchemy segment of occult Catholicism, talking about New World Order agendas tied to veganism and pantheism and a lot of Gnostic ideas. And so as this develops, we have a sort of veganism, reincarnation doctrines of which consolamentum stops you from incarnating in this evil world of illusion and matter, and then you can ascend back to the oneness of spirit. And of course, the evil Catholic Church are the archons trying to hold you back from this secret knowledge. But back to Mr. Nisitas. Apparently, he was working with this Bishop Mark. And I guess Bishop Mark was consecrated in Bulgaria. But since the Bulgarians weren't quite dualistic enough, they deemed this an invalid consecration and he had to get rebaptized. Now, I think this is kind of funny in relationship to what I understand about some of the Eastern Orthodox Church, is that they will rebaptize you often, depending on the situation, depending on the church. I think if you get baptized into Roman Catholicism, if you go to Mount Athos, they will rebaptize you. So is this a carryover from the Eastern culture of rebaptizing that is playing out in the heretical Cathar Church? Because Barber and other scholars even debate as to how the asceticism and hierarchy got into some of the dualism that supposedly was mixed with remnants of Politianism, which added to the absolute dualism in Constantinople, but they're saying that that was lacking some of those elements that the Eastern Orthodox provided. So it's a weird amalgamation, and you wonder if the Roman Catholic influence in southern France, and perhaps some of the Jewish influence as well, made the Cathar doctrine even more unique, because we talked about how Nisitas didn't actually create the Catharism, he just introduced the dualism or the absolute dualism. So, Mr. Nisitas and Mark are spreading their version of dualism in these territories in Lombardy, but then there's some controversies that actually lead to a Cathar or dualist schism, so to speak, where the Bulgarian Bogomils reacted to some of Nisitas's promotion of absolute dualism and they sent a dude named Patracius, who they say may have been a bishop, to Lombardy, and he's claiming that Nisitas had been consecrated by a bishop named Simon, who had been caught with a woman. So, as soon as your perfecti status has been unperfected, well, you're no longer valid to consecrate anyone else. And so, this would nullify all of Nisitas's work in Lombardy, 
because he had an invalid consolamentum baptism. So people didn't know how to react and there was a schism that happened. So my point is that there's a lot of funny little things going on within the Cathar church where they're arguing with each other and all of these odd doctrines are causing all sorts of problems when people can't be so perfect, right? So perhaps the Catholic perspective on confession to deal with these imperfections of man rather than trying to get baptized and be perfect until you die, maybe that's a bit more reasonable. And one more story to elaborate on this, which is kind of comical. Apparently, one of these disagreements over Cathar doctrines or dualist doctrines created such a stir that it caught the attention of the Roman Catholic authorities. So if they weren't bickering about their dualism, then the Catholics might not have noticed it so quickly and started hunting down the heresy. So they kind of gave themselves up, shot themselves in the foot. And is this a further example of the Ouroboros of revolution devouring itself? And some of these folks coming from the Eastern Church are claiming all sorts of interesting things about the church in Greece or Byzantium had a large number of Cathars or dualists that had infiltrated the church in large numbers and were basically spread throughout the world. And I think at some point they mentioned there were like 16 of these churches. So that's kind of a big deal. It's not like this was some isolated incident. So before we finish the first hour, let's wrap up on some of the miscellaneous things and some examples of how people acted following these doctrines. Well, another additional parallel to Protestantism is that they rejected the idea of prayers for the dead, the basis of purgatory, right? And they also, on the occult side of things, called everything a simulation because matter was evil and non-existent, and thus Christ's resurrection was a simulation or an apparition. So this is kind of similar to what's going on in science today, saying we live in a simulation and it's a holographic universe. And you have a lot of that being promoted in the alternative media. So is that a very Gnostic idea? And then we have an inquisitor account of how some of these dualist ideas came into southern France. And it was because French aristocracy went to Constantinople and they got connected with all these different merchants, and they came back Gnostics, essentially. So this is a similar accusation against the Templars going east to Constantinople area and coming back with their usurious doctrines and blasphemies against Christ. Obviously, Barber doesn't want to connect the two, but I think it's interesting. And there's also an interesting prophecy from St. Hildegard that eerily predicts this quote-unquote great heresy that was predicted to flourish during this time period. And apparently these travelers to Constantinople were able to copy this information from the manuscripts that we talked about, the Secret Supper, the Vision of Isaiah, stuff like that. And because those Gnostic dualist-type texts were preserved in Constantinople, well, that enabled them into coming back into Roman Catholic territories. And speaking of heresy in Constantinople, I think that there is a very interesting crusade coincidence that happens 
with the Fourth Crusade debacle and the Cathar Crusade happening not too long after. So we have two crusades authored by the same pope, Innocent III. One does not do what it's intended and goes rogue, and actually the first city the Fourth Crusade attacks was a Catholic city called Zara, which is Zadar in modern Croatia. And after that, the Pope immediately denounces it and excommunicates it. So, the first city this rogue crusading campaign attacked was a Roman Catholic city. Yet, a lot of Eastern Orthodox will blame the papacy for the Fourth Crusade attacking Constantinople, an Eastern Orthodox or Byzantine Christian city. Yet, the first city it went rogue on was a Roman Catholic city. So they conveniently omit that. And the other interesting parallel here is that this dualist heresy flourished in Constantinople and went over into Roman Catholic territory, of which they had to create a crusade to deal with. And that crusade actually did what it was supposed to and deal with the Cathar heresy. And this happened roughly five years after the rogue crusade sacked Constantinople. So really think about this. We have two crusades. One goes to the left, meaning the dark side. And the Pope never intended this to happen and denounced it as soon as it started causing mischief. And it sacks the very city of which the heresy was flourishing in that went into the southern France territory that the crusade that went to the right and did what it was supposed to maybe got a little overzealous in particular instances, but it was a success, and it crushed the heresy that came from the city that the rogue crusade crushed five years earlier. Some might call that God's divine providence and judgment, but a lot of Eastern Orthodox blame the Roman Catholic Church for the sack of Constantinople like it was some intentional thing. And the last thing we will wrap up on is some of the crazy Cathar beliefs. And this is probably the most interesting thing. We save the best for last. Well, we have documented evidence of one man adopting the Cathar dualism. And he decides to divorce his wife because, after all, marriage, procreation, and women are all evil in Gnosticism, especially this extreme dualism. So he's just doing the right thing, right? Well, that's what these beliefs are influencing people to do. And then the Catholic Church convinces him that he committed an error and he repents. But the guilt seems to be so strong that he eventually commits suicide. So is that a terrible repercussion of a Gnostic idea and heresy flourishing? And that is actually the intention and the result to screw people's lives up and at the same time destroy Catholic stability and the promotion of the sacrament of marriage and having children within it. We also have another instance of an elderly lady who is receiving the Endura ritual, which is basically euthanizing her because she is sick and they think she's going to die. But she actually starts to recover and wants some food and these Cathar priests are trying to convince her family not to let her eat food so she'll die. And her own daughter is falling for it 
and arguing with her family who's trying to give the grandmother food so she can live. And the Cathar priest comes in and calls the woman who wants her food so she won't die a, quote, evil old woman. And eventually someone caves and brings her some cooked cabbage, but she still won't eat meat because they have that vegan mindset. And this same Cathar priest, which is part of the OTA family, which is sort of a Cathar revival, well, this is what he says about the Catholic Church. He says that salvation could only be attained through the Cathar Church, whose ministers lived ascetic and moral lives, of which they're accused of actually being frauds, but not through the Catholic Church, whose priests were evil men and did nothing except receive money and sacraments that were worthless. And when the world ended, the whole world would be a fiery hell. Gee, that sounds Protestant end timesy to me. And that people who had the consolamentum would be blessed and basically they would escape this prison of matter. Another interesting Cathar teaching, which is found in the popular Cathar belief chapter, so this was a popular belief, on page 101 it describes their viewpoints on women. And some of these priests were preaching that it was not worthy to believe that the Son of God was born of a woman or that the Son of God adumbrated himself in a thing so vile as a woman. <laughs> so a woman is vile, and of course the Son of God can't be born through a woman. So women are intrinsically evil, but yet somehow the Cathars and Gnostics had this enlightened view of women, and they were actually feminists. So this shows the absurdity of that. There are also numerous examples of Cathar priests and Cathar believers. When a woman became pregnant, they would tell her that she was impregnated with a demon. So what a lovely enlightened view where when my wife gets pregnant, I got a bunch of Cathars around me telling me that she's basically carrying the spawn of Satan in her womb. Well, that's certainly the enlightened type of society I'd like to live in. I don't know about you. So to further this point, let's read from page 188. And we're going to talk about the story of Sibylla, who suffered a trauma of her own when her daughter, Jacoba, a baby of only a few months old, became so ill that her father wanted her to hereticated, which is just a term for the Endura suicide ritual. So they, quote-unquote, baptize them in the consolamentum, but they stop feeding them, so they die. So they performed this baptism on the baby, and the Cathar priest told the mother of the baby that, quote, she should not give the girl food or drink or anything which is born of flesh, and that if she lived, that is to say, survived this sickness, she should then only feed her Lenten food from then on out. So a vegan diet. And Peter Raymond, her husband, was very pleased, saying that if his daughter died in this state, she would be an angel of God. But Sibylla, the mother, could not agree with this, and she said she could not see her daughter die in this way. And then she suckled her when her husband was out of the room and basically gave her milk. But apparently the husband found out, and the, quote, resulting quarrel was so serious that the husband did not love her or her daughter, nor speak to them for a long time, as Sibylla put it, but eventually he recognized his error. 
But before he recognized this error, one of these Cathar priest class was telling him that Sibylla was a bad mother and that women were demons. So this mother is a demon because she's trying to give her baby food to not die instead of just trying to let this sick baby die because it can be an angel in heaven because of this silly baptism ritual. But unfortunately, when the baby was about a year old, it died anyways, and the grandmother who they tried to suicide previously saw what happened and realized these Cathar priests were crazy, and then she started eating meat again and stopped her veganism. So those are some tales from the Cathar church and influence, and we'll get into a few more in the next hour and elaborate on all of the other romanticizing about the Cathars, trying to pretend like these things didn't really happen and that they were these freedom-loving, tolerant people who were peaceful vegetarians. But to wrap it up, we might find something surprising from Mr. Barber, that he never really polemicizes the Cathars too much, despite the crazy stories that we just read and mentioned. He never even insinuates that these guys are nuts or that there's something very wrong with what's going on here. Now, some might say that he's just trying to be neutral and a scholar who's presenting the evidence and interpreting it best he can. And I would agree that he does a pretty good job of it. But on page 106, he kind of gives away a particular bias that I think is worth reading and ending on because I think it demonstrates the Cathar spell that gets cast on people. And he states, The attraction of Catharism lay not only in the transparent morality of most of the perfecti, but also in the assertion that the consolamentum would enable their souls to be readmitted to the heavenly kingdom and thus escape the miseries of the world. Moreover, in an era when the Catholic Church itself vigorously promoted the cult of the Virgin and the life of the human Christ, the identification of this, the figure of the avenging Jehovah of the Old Testament, and this is the important bit, was always likely to create problems for many thinking persons, whether they were peasants or lords. So, basically saying the Roman Catholic doctrine is always going to create a problem for anyone who's a thinking person, thus indicating the Cathars were more free-thinking than the Catholic Church, and he's basically justifying their reaction, and he never demonizes these crazy things about saying that women who are pregnant have demons in their womb and trying to suicide babies and elderly grandmas for their weird consolamentum beliefs. Whereas previously, he illustrates that the Catholics described the Cathars as cunning serpents who were able to fake virtue in order to fool those around them and manipulate them. But it seems Mr. Barber would rather have us believe that it was the Cathars who were more enlightened because at least they were free-thinking enough to question the absurd doctrines of Roman Catholicism. To gain access to the second hour... Head to www.rockstaresoterica.com and become a member to gain all access to all content at all times. Or to purchase individual episodes such as this one, head to schism206.podbean.com.